We're in a series looking at some of the social and moral issues of our society that actually conflict with the Bible. So we're going to raise some, some questions. We're going to raise some comments. And, and I really do believe that as Christians, it is really vitally important that we understand what this book, our Bibles say about how we should live as Christ followers, as how we should live as Christians. Because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says, we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and we teach them to obey Christ. We need to be so aware of what the scriptures tell us in not just the issues we're going to deal with, but every issue so that when we're confronted by them, we won't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine, that we won't be worried about, oh, is that true or is that not true? We should be so understanding of what God's word tells us that when we're confronted by these things, that we will, when people try to trick us, be sure-footed. We'll be able to understand the message that God wants to do. And, and the culture of the, the age or the world in which we live is, is really trying to trick us, is really trying to cause us to believe something that's contrary to this book. We're being sold lies as truth, and, and as a result, many Christians have found themselves on different side of some of these moral issues that we have in our society. The problem, or the concern, I guess, is that we sometimes find ourselves on different sides of that argument, even within the body of Christ. And it shouldn't be so. It comes generally because of a, a, a lack of understanding of what the scriptures actually talk about. Last week, we looked at what the Bible says about religion and the importance of having a relationship with Jesus as opposed to keeping a bunch of rules. And, and from our society's perspective, Religion is about the things you can't do. You can't do this. You've got to go to church on Sunday. You've got to make sure you read your Bible. You've got to pray. Oh, and don't forget, you've got to give offerings. That's the culture from a world perspective of what the body or the church is like. Don't let you, you're not allowed to have fun. You're not allowed to enjoy life. You can't go out partying, dancing. And all of those things is a world culture thinking of what the church is like. The thing is, while that's keeping a bunch of rules, we probably won't do those things, not because we can't, but because of a choice that we make for ourselves. There'll be some things that are okay from our society, but are not okay because we, don't, we know they're not going to be good for us. And so today I, I want to look at another issue in our society that comes in direct contradiction to what the scriptures tell us. And before we get into it, I want to be very clear on this one thing. 
that when laws are imposed upon us from a government, when we are told what we should be doing, we are obliged to do those things unless the law imposed upon us is in direct opposition to God's word. He is the supreme authority. If our government tells us we have to do something and it's not in contrary to the word of God, we should do it. God has put people in authority over us to do that. We submit to those in authority. But when those in authority over us put laws or regulations in place that are contrary to God's word, we need to listen to God's word and probably, not probably, we need to be disobedient to, God, to the world's view on those things. And that's going to be hard sometimes. It's going to put you on the outer of some of your groups. With that being said, back in 2017, there was an amendment passed that changed what marriage looked like in Australia. On the 7th of December 2017, the marriage amendment law changed and they passed a law making same-sex marriage legal in Australia. Then on the 9th of December, the Marriage Act was updated a couple of days later to accommodate that, to allow for what was called marriage equality. You and I are very aware of what took place. Most of us had a, an opportunity to, to have a vote of kind. And, but what that did at that time was to create a law that was in direct opposition to what God's word tells us. And so it, it actually put us, for those who are living by God's word, at odds with those in our world which is why we need to be abundantly clear on what Christian marriage looks like. Now, I'm not here to, to judge our world's perspective on those things. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's broken. And because of that, we'll have broken laws. And we need to realise that our job, who are Christian people, is not to put those people down, but to bring them to faith, to show the love of Jesus in the process of how we live and how we live within the context of our marriages. Now, we don't necessarily have to agree. We'll talk about that. The question, or the, I've got a couple of, few, three questions today in the way of points. And if you're following along either here or on your sermon notes online, wherever you're following them, the first one is idea. Whose idea was marriage? Whose idea was marriage? And most of us already know that. The, it, the answer is really quite simple. God was the, it was God's idea. Marriage is God's idea. Right back in the back of Genesis, God saw that it was not good that man was alone. Now, if you read through Genesis 1, you'll find that man crea uh, God created man on day 6. And he gave them some instructions. But then when you go to chapter 2, it feels like you've gone or reading a different book. Because it talks about a different process. But I, what happens between Genesis 1 and 2 is this. How many of you seen movies that have started out and you think, what in the world is going on? Then it says down there, three years earlier. Have you ever seen that happen on your movies? That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 2. 
we have the outline of what takes place on day six. Chapter two is like, this is actually how the, the formation of men happened. This is, let's go back just a little bit to see what, how God created man. It's easy to say that God created man in his image, but it's how the process took place. So chapter two is actually the same thing but it's actually giving us a lot more detail. But when you get into chapter 2, you find some things that take place. And in, when, he crea- when he said that it's not good for man to be alone, that was chapter 2, and he saw, and what he did at that point was to bring um, Adam some animals. And I want to pick that passage up in Genesis 2.18. It says, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. And he brought them all to man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, put him under some anaesthetic, put him on the operating table, and while he slept, the Lord took out one of his ribs, the man's ribs, and closed up the opening without a scar. Doesn't say that, but I'm sure there was no scar. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last! He exclaimed, the one is bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh. She will be called, whoa, man, woman, because she was taken from man. And then this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The two are united in one. It was God's idea for a husband and a wife to be co-joined in such a way that they were one flesh. Right from the beginning, it was because it was not good that man was on his own. But the word was translator that we we hear a helper that will help him literally means someone who not only stands alongside of her husband, but but is even with or equal to her husband. And that's important for us to understand that, that when God created a helper for Adam, he was creating someone that was even with and equal to Adam, but complementary to him. And he was complementary to his wife. They were two people with individual needs, individual gifts and abilities and personalities, ideas, all of that thing, but the two meshed as one. One without the other didn't make up the complete value. It was a companion, equal with and necessary in partnership. She had strengths that Adam didn't have. She was the one that was to carry children, to to give birth to her children or their, their children, and together they would be one. When God formed Eve from the from the rib of Adam, it was an indication that was she was to be of man, like man, but different. If he'd wanted to create anything else, he would have, but he he didn't. It was like man, he she was part of man but different to man. And that's important for us. And, but when Adam woke up from his operation, Adam named her 
or said, she shall be called woman. Now, Eve comes into it because that's part of the beginning of, and so Eve is, the be, is where she got her name. Adam was the start of, and Adam named her because she was taken from man, bone from his bones, flesh from his flesh. And that's why the scriptures tell us when a husband and a wife marry, are joined together in marriage, they become one. Completeness is absolutely found in the male and female union that God ordained right from the very beginning. Now, we need to understand that. It was God's idea, not man's idea. It wasn't our man's thought, oh, wouldn't it be good to find something? Not anything in all creation up until that point was suitable, but God created woman as a suitable helper. Help meet is the full word. And I know that, that it was there, there's this careful study of Scripture will show you that marriage is to be monogamous and it's heterosexual. And I know that as you read through Scriptures, you'll find many godly men who had multiple wives. And I want to say to you that very rarely in any of those relationships did that work out well. Almost every single Godly men who had multiple wives had marital problems. It wasn't the way that God intended it. He blessed people in, in spite of it, but it wasn't the way that God had organized it or planned for it. He instituted the concept of marriage and the foundational structure of marriage. So, so when our government decided that it was going to change the rules of marriage, it was attempting to change God's word. It was attempting to change what God had ordained and put into practice something that was not only contrary, but in many ways offensive. It went completely against the principles that God put in place for those who are Christ followers. And as I said before, I understand we live in a fallen world, and we do. And there will be people who, who don't follow God's law. And while that's not okay, that's okay. That's, we need to understand that. So our government needs to make laws that will accommodate those who do not follow God's laws in some ways at some times. But changing God's law for the sake of it isn't the answer. There are other means of doing that. And what we did in changing God's law was not fix a problem. The problem lies within the heart of men. The problem lies within our, well, our heart and God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah when he said in Jeremiah 17, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And the, the question leads us to know what God is saying. No one but God alone knows how bad it is. So it was God's idea at the start. So what was marriage to be an example of? And if you're not married or don't intend to be married, then this is not writing you out because this is the important part of, of that aspect, I guess, is, is that God's idea of marriage was an example of something else that we're all part of. And we need to realise that. Marriage, marriage for a, from a definition point of view, is, is a voluntary, sexual and public social union of one man and one woman. That's realistically a, a, a kind of a secular, but 
perhaps a better definition of what our marriage should be. It's intended that the union would be for life. That was God's desire. And what is important for us to understand is that union is patterned upon the union of God with his people, the bride of Christ. And what's the bride of Christ? The church. Marriage was patterned upon what was to be the church of Jesus Christ or the, the body of Christ. It was the pattern of what the church should be. So if you're not married or you've never been married or, or all of those things might come place in you at the moment, the reality is that we are all part of the bride of Christ. We have a responsibility at that point. Paul compares marriage to the church in Ephesians 5 and he says um, how the church is to respond to one another. He says in, in, um, chapter, in verse 21, chapter 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the saviour of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means you love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her so to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined with his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So this what Paul is explaining is that the roles of husbands and wives in a marriage are not randomly assigned or even able to be really for us to change. But they are actually rooted in the distinctive role of Christ and his church. The roles of a husband and wife are paralleled to Christ and the body of Christ. And so, therefore, husbands and wives, if we are going to be faithful to our marriage commitment, we, we ought to be concisely copying the relationship that Christ has with his church. That's going to be a little bit more confronting. And accordingly, wives are to take their unique role and you have a unique role for the purpose of the church is in Christ. So you get your role from the way that we as the body of Christ respond to our head and husbands get their role from the head who is over the church, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5 says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his himself its saviour. As, as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. And that verse right there is what has many outside the church and some even in the church. 
have taken people to task on. That word submit. You should submit to your wives, submit to your husbands in everything. I want to say to you the word submit does not mean that the wife has no opinion of, of her own. It does not mean that she's this doormat for her husband to come in and tell her what she should and shouldn't be doing. That's not what the submit word means. It does not mean that her husband can get her to do anything he wants her to do. Because that's not what submit means either. To understand wife's, a wife's submission, we, we need to understand the husband's leadership or the headship to, do, to understand it properly because her submission is based on his headship. And that puts it back squarely and directly on those of us who are husbands. Christ is the ultimate overall authority. I mentioned it before when regards to, to the moral laws. We, we live by the word of God as opposed to government laws. He's the ultimate headship. He's the ultimate authority overall. And the husband does not replace Christ as the woman's supreme authority. The husband doesn't take God's place in her life. Therefore, she may never follow her husband into sin because Christ is the ultimate authority. There are going to be things that if her husband asks her to do that are contrary to God's word, that she has a very good right to say no to the way that she's treated, the way that she's spoken to. There's, there's, you are, as a wife or a, a future wife, you are not the doormat of your husband. Now, while I know very well that what I'm saying is not what our world thinks, and I know that there are some, even in churches, who would not agree with what I'm saying. But God is the one who has placed each one into that position. So submitting to, to our husbands or submitting to your husbands is submitting to God because he has put people in authority. And the husband has that responsibility, which puts all of it back on us as husbands. It's subjective to that. But when a law is imposed on us that is in direct contradiction to the word of God, well, then we continue to submit to God. That's the, that's the overall world or the biblical law. And even if a Christian wife, she may have to stand against the sinful will of her husband at times, she can still live a life of submission in the process of that because she can show by her attitude uh, and her, she can show by her actions that she's not really wanting to resist his will. It's actually more that she longs for him to forsake the sin that he's causing and wants him to turn from that. It's, it comes across as attitude, in the attitude, in the heart. And so her disposition to honour him can still be right and still be good, and but not do what he's asking her to do because it's in contrary or contrary to the word of God in the process of that. It's an example of what the body of Christ is like. It's what Paul said. Christ is our head. He's the one who directs us. He's the one who leads us. We submit to him, but he allows us to have our own opinions. He allows us to have our own way even at times. 
He doesn't say, I'm the boss and you're going to do it like this or you're all out. He doesn't do that for us as the church either. When laws are imposed upon us that don't go against God's words, I don't know how many times I need to say this, we listen to God's word. If wives take up their unique cue in marriage from the church's subjection to Christ, then husbands are to take theirs from Christ's love for the church. This means that as a, male, as a husband, male, that the headship lays upon the husband to lead with the kind of love that is willing to die for his wife, his bride. We need to be ready to do that. We need to be ready to do that. Husband who plops himself in front of the television set and, and demands or orders his wife run around like a slave and pick up this. It's a bit like the magic coffee table. And has abandoned Christ in that process. Jesus found himself with a towel and washed his disciples' feet. And if a man wants to be a Christian husband, we have to copy Jesus. We have to copy his example for us. He, he serves. He honours his wife. It's a mutual submission with a defined set of rules where, where, and that's expressed where Paul says in Ephesians 5.21 and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So one submits and both submit to each other. It's not the one over the other. It's equal with and compatible to. We were created equal but different. We have our own ideas and our own way of doing things. So when we come to a Christian marriage, we need to realise that it's, it's a submission that works both ways. So, which raises a question for me, and, and it may do for you, because, and some of you have been in this, in this position. So, again, it's going, don't take offence at, at any of this, because this I want to share in love. What about divorce? What about divorce? The, div the question of divorce even came up for Jesus in his ministry in Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with the question, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife just for any reason? Jesus' response is interesting because he says, haven't you read the scriptures? Which is what I'm saying. We need to understand what the scriptures tell us, but... They record from the beginning God made them male and female. And he said this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but they're one. So let no one split apart what God has brought together or joined together. And what Jesus was saying straight out was that divorce was never part of the plan of marriage. Divorce wasn't on the table for God's plan for what marriage should be like. When a husband and wife get married under God, they are one flesh. But the Pharisees pushed him on the question and said, you know what? Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied again, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession 
to your hard hearts. But it was not what God had originally intended. It was never God's intention. And therefore, it's not what's best. And and I tell you this, says Jesus, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Now, two questions come up very quickly for me when I read that. One, is it only the wife who has to be faithful? Because no mention of the husband in that process. And secondly, what's meant by being unfaithful? Because we have a preconceived idea of that. They're both quite relatively easy to answer from Scripture. In answering the first one, is it the only, only the wife who has to be faithful? Absolutely not. It's assumed that the husband would be faithful as Christ is faithful to the church. Remember? We're Christ's representative in the marriage. It's assumed that the husband would be faithful as Christ is faithful to a church. In regard to the church, Paul points out this in his letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, he says, If we are unfaithful, he, God, remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. God will always be faithful. That's the assumption when it talks about if a wife is unfaithful. And if we are being a Christian husband, then we will also always be faithful. So it's not picking on the woman for being unfaithful. It's an agreed understanding that marriage is faithfulness. So both need to remain faithful to each other in order to have this marriage that God is speaking about. The second question is, what is meant by being unfaithful? It's a little broader, I think, than what we we often attribute it to because while it is insinuated that it's only in the area of sexual immorality, the reality is that abuse of any kind, immorality, adultery, neglect, or any other kind of trauma that's inflicted upon another person is being unfaithful to the commitment that we have made in each other to our wedding vows. We typically use the words we do in our church to have and to hold to from this day forward to for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish from till death do us part, according to God's holy law. And we have each person repeat that. According to God's holy law is what's said. And according to the law of God, we commit to loving and honouring one another in the way that Christ has treated his church. And when we are unfaithful to those vows, that we will cherish one another for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, When we commit to that, according to God's law in that whole process, we are saying that we are going to honour our spouse in that way. Even 
though God's idea for marriage was for life, and it should be our idea for marriage too. When we get married, we're going to be, it's, there should be no need for a prenuptial agreement to be signed before a wedding because that's, if we go into it with that understanding, we've already put, opened up the door for it to happen. We've got to be careful. It's, it's not in God's desire to see trauma in a marriage inflicted upon one another of any kind. And so Jesus said divorce has only been put in place because of our hard hearts. It's because we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're, we're doing our own. It's selfishness. Divorce was an option Moses put in place because we couldn't do it. And so Jesus says, that's the reason for divorce. That's the reason that you may get out of it. It's not what God has originally intended, but that's the concession. And that's too where we differ from the world, from a Christian perspective in, that's made allowances even to the point of allowing persons who are married or getting married to write their own vows for their wedding. Because we want to leave those because of God's holy law, out of our wedding vows. We, we want what we're going to commit to. We'll commit to so long as you don't do. We'll commit as long as this is happening. And so we, we deal with it at that point in even our wedding vows. And we accommodate that. And we leave out God's laws. And before I finish, there's just one more thing that I need to deal with because it's likely that some of you who are here or are listening in on this have been through or are going through or have been through somehow this process of divorce and remarriage and or are living in an abusive relationship right now and are not sure what to do. Maybe you're feeling judged or feeling a little sense of guilt and, and wonder if God has actually rejected you or the church would reject you because of what you've gone through. And the, the answer is that divorce and remarriage are not the unforgivable sin. They're, they're not. From the church perspective, we need to be, as Christ is to the church, we need to be forgiving. As Christ has forgiven us all of our debt, all of our sin, we have to be willing to accept. And, and it's, it's not unforgivable. So wherever you are in that process, if that's you, when we come to him and we're with humility and repentance hearts and we confess the, the error of, of things that have happened in our life, then we can be restored. The church as well needs to restore people to those positions, to restore them so that we can be healthy. The church has a responsibility to provide pastoral oversight to the, the husband and the wife and to children if there's children in the middle of that. It's not picking sides, it's, it's being over all of that and willing to accept that. Church has a responsibility and it's not always done a good job with that, by the way. The church has not always done a good job with restoring marriages it, and it needs to come before God. We, we need to bring ourselves before God as a church to live according to what his holy law tells us, and that requires confession and repentance as well. Marriage is hard work. It's hard work. But I want to encourage any of you 
who may be going through difficulties at present or into the future. If you're looking at being married, don't go into it with your eyes closed. To pray and ask God for wisdom and guidance. If you're in an abusive marriage or relationship, whatever that abuse looks like, I would encourage you to seek help. It's not God's desire that you should be in any sort of trauma in regards to that. It's always God's desire to bring restoration. And that too ought to be our goal as a church. We should be looking to restore. But I heard a comment at National Conference which I want to share with you, and it's, it's this, that forgiveness does not always mean restitution, restoration. Cons- uh, forgiveness doesn't always mean restoration. Forgiveness is essential. It's a requirement, but restoration, while desirable, may not be possible. And we need to, though, choose to forgive. uh, Even if that doesn't happen, even if the restoration doesn't happen. And we need to choose that wherever possible and let our actions bring glory and honour to God. We live in the fallen world and so we need to understand our world's view of marriage will be significantly different to ours. That doesn't mean we write them off. But we don't have to adopt them, we don't have to agree with them and we certainly don't have to live by them. We should be an example in our Christian marriages to those we live amongst. We should be the example of those outside of the kingdom who don't see things the way that you and I might see them. They should be seeing our marriages and desiring that kind of marriage. To see the difference that a God-honouring marriage will bring between one man and one woman for life. The commitment. Why does it seem so unrealistic to imagine that people will celebrate a 50th or a 60th or a 70th wedding anniversary these days? It It shouldn't be abnormal. But it does. And for various reasons. There's a lot of reasons why that can happen. And some are even out of our control. But I would pray that God might bless your marriages, your future marriages, as you seek to serve him and honour him through the relationships that you have. And if you're considering marriage into the future, then can I give you just one piece of advice? Put the Lord Jesus Christ first. Honour the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. He is the authority over both of you while one of another submit to each other under Christ. Let me pray. Father, I know that some of these things that have been said raise the hairs on the back of people's necks and I know that there's times, Father, when it's hard to to stand up for truth. But you, Jesus said, your word is truth, or God, your word is truth. And so today, Father, 
I pray that we would look to your word for what is true and what is right and what is honourable and what is noble. What is excellent, what is praiseworthy. And we would live by that. We would honour you in that process. And I know, Father, even in this, this part of the body here, there are many who have been hurt in marriage. There's been many who have lived under abusive, in, in abusive relationships and have been deeply hurt. And Father, we ask that you might bring healing to those damaged emotions. I pray that you might bring complete, your complete fullness into those relationships. And even if restoration's not possible, Father, that you would allow us to, to be people of forgiveness. That you would allow us to have humble hearts and a repentant heart. And to move with joy as we live according to your word. And may your kingdom come and your will be done today in each of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.